people get to this clandestine archipelago. Hour by hour, planes fly there, ships steer their course there, and trains thunder off to it, but all with nary a mark on them to tell of their destination. And at ticket windows or at travel bureaus for Soviet or foreign tourists, the employees would be astounded if you were to ask for a ticket to go there. They know nothing and they've never heard of the archipelago as a whole or of any one of its innumerable islands. Those who go to the archipelago to administer it get there via the training schools of the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Those who go there to be guards are conscripted via the military conscription centers. And those who, like you and me, dear reader, go there to die must get there solely and compulsorily via arrest. Arrest? Need it be said that it is a breaking point in your life, a bolt of lightning which has scored a direct hit on you? That it is an unassimilable spiritual earthquake not every person can cope with, as a result of which people often slip into insanity? The universe has as many different centers as there are living beings in it. Each of us is a center of the universe, and that universe is shattered when they hiss at you. You are under arrest. If you are arrested, can anything else remain unshattered by this cataclysm? But the darkened mind is incapable of embracing these displacements in our universe, and both the sophisticated and the veriest simpleton among us, drawing on all life's experience, can gasp out only, Me? What for? And this is a question which, though repeated millions and millions of times before, has yet to receive an answer. Arrest is an instantaneous, shattering thrust, expulsion, somersault from one state into another. We have been happily born, or perhaps have unhappily dragged our weary way down the long and crooked streets of our lives, past all kinds of walls and fences made of rotting wood, rammed earth, brick, concrete, iron railings. We have never given a thought to what lies behind them. We have never tried to penetrate them with our vision or our understanding. But there is where the gulag country begins, right next to us, two yards away from us. In addition, we have failed to notice an enormous number of closely fitted, well-disguised doors and gates in these fences. All those gates were prepared for us, every last one. And all of a sudden, the fateful gate swings quickly open and four white male hands, unaccustomed to physical labor, but nonetheless strong and tenacious, grab us by the leg, arm, collar, cape, ear, and drag us in like a sack. And the gate behind us, the gate to our past life, is slammed shut once and for all. That's all there is to it. You are arrested. And you'll find nothing better to respond with than a lamb-like bleat. Me? What for? That's what arrest is. It's a blinding flash and a blow which shifts the present instantly into the past and the impossible into omnipotent actuality. That's all. And neither for the first hour nor for the first day will you be able to grasp anything else, except that in your desperation, the fake circus moon will blink at you. It's a mistake. They'll set things right. The author continues. The traditional image of arrest is also what happens afterward, when the poor victim has been taken away. It is an alien, brutal, and 
crushing force totally dominating the apartment for hours on end. A breaking, ripping open, pulling from the walls, emptying things from wardrobes and desks onto the floor, shaking, dumping out and ripping apart, piling up mountains of litter on the floor, and the crunch of things being trampled beneath jack boots. And nothing is sacred in the search. During the arrest of the locomotive engineer, Inishin, a tiny coffin stood in his room containing the body of his newly dead child. The jurists dumped the child's body out of the coffin and searched it. They shake sick people out of their sick beds and they unwind bandages to search beneath them. goes on to describe the arrest of other people and gives examples of the different mechanisms that the organ, as he calls them, the organs, the organs of the state, the organs of the Soviet police force, utilize to spirit folks off into the night, or maybe off into the day, or maybe off across the country in the back of a train or maybe in the back of a police car or as you'll hear later maybe in the back of a friend's car back to the book not everyone can be arrested at home with a preliminary knock at the door and if there is a knock then it has to be the house manager or else the postman and not everyone can be arrested at work either if the person to be arrested is vicious then it's better to seize him outside his ordinary lilo away from his family and colleagues, for those from those who share his views, from any hiding places. It is essential that he have no chance to destroy, hide, or pass on anything to anyone. VIPs in the military or the party were sometimes first given new assignments, ensconced in a private railway car and then arrested en route. Some obscure ordinary mortal scared to death by epidemic arrest all around him and already depressed for a week by sinister glances from his chief is suddenly summoned to the local party committee where he is beamingly presented with a vacation ticket to a Sochi sanatorium the rabbit is overwhelmed and immediately concludes that his fears were groundless after expressing his gratitude he hurries home triumphant to pack his suitcase it is only two hours till train time, and he scolds his wife for being too slow. He arrives at the station with time to spare, and there in the waiting room or at the bar he is hailed by an extraordinarily pleasant young man. Don't you remember me, Pietor Ivanich? Pietor Ivanich has difficulty remembering. Well, not exactly, you see, although... The young man, however, is overflowing with friendly concern. Come now, how can that be? I'll have to remind you, and he bows respectfully to Pyotr, Pyotr Ivanich's wife. You must forgive us. I'll keep him only one minute. The wife accedes, and trustingly, the husband lets himself be led away by the arm, forever, or for ten years. He continues on, details quite a few other arrests of party officials, normal people, doctors, back to the book and here's the reference to the organs that I mentioned a minute ago one has to give the organs their due 
In an age when public speeches, the plays in our theaters, and women's fashions all seem to have come off assembly lines, arrest can be of the most varied kind. They take you aside in a factory corridor after you had your pest checked, and you're arrested. They take you from a military hospital with a temperature of 102, as they did with Ons Bernstein, and the doctor will not raise a peep about your arrest. Just let him try. They'll take you right off the operating table, as they took N. M. Voriobev, a school inspector, in 1936 in the middle of an operation for stomach ulcer, and drag you off to a cell, as they did him, half alive and all bloody, as Karpunich recollects. In the gastronome, the fancy food store, you are invited to the special order department and arrested there. You are arrested by a religious pilgrim whom you have put up for the night for the sake of Christ. You are arrested by a meter man who has come to read your electric meter. You are arrested by a bicyclist who has run into you on the street, by a railway conductor, a taxi driver, a savings bank teller, the manager of a movie theater. Any one of them can arrest you, and you notice the concealed maroon-colored identification card only when it's too late. And there's many, many more of these stories throughout the first chapter of this book. All of them seemingly taken at most unsuspecting times and all of these people just disappear off the street from their apartment from their workplace just gone back to the book for several decades political arrests were distinguished in our country precisely by the fact that people were arrested who were guilty of nothing and were therefore unprepared to put up any resistance whatsoever sentence bears some thought there was a general feeling of being destined for destruction a sense of having nowhere to escape from the GPU NKVD which incidentally given our internal passport system was quite accurate and even in the fever of epidemic arrest when people leaving for work said farewell to their families every day because they could not be certain they would return at night even then almost no one tried to run away and only in rare cases did people commit suicide and that was exactly what was required. A submissive sheep is a find for a wolf. After having spent some time detailing people being spirited away and the rather creative means by which they were spirited away, Solzhenitsyn starts to talk about what effect this had on the people who were left behind. Friends, families, witnesses to these submissives being led away by the arm in a train station or spirited away in a taxi cab. He talks about the thought process general of the people who were, who were left behind he talks uh, back to the book universal innocence also gave rise to the universal failure to act 
and I neglected to read the paragraph before that where he explains that nobody that was taken away was really guilty of anything. They were just arrested, just like the very first couple pages that I read to you when Alexander Solzhenitsyn described his arrest. He wasn't expecting it. He wasn't anticipating it. All of a sudden, he was just arrested. He found himself suddenly arrested. So you had a country full of people who were guilty of nothing. That all were 100% sure of their innocence. Seeing people being carried away and thinking to themselves that surely that person was guilty of something. That's why they're being arrested. The police wouldn't come and arrest somebody who wasn't guilty of something, would they? No. It's that whole them not me mentality, which as you read this book, you begin to see in clearer and clearer detail that that is a dangerous idea to have in your head. Continuing on, universal innocence also gave rise to the universal failure to act. Maybe they won't take you. Maybe it will all blow over. A.I. Ladizhensky was the chief teacher in a school in remote Kologriv. In 1937, a peasant approached him in an open market and passed him a message from a third person. Alexander Ivanich, get out of town. You are on the list. But he stayed. After all, the whole school rests on my shoulders and their own children are pupils here. How can they arrest me? Several days later, he was arrested. Not everyone was so fortunate as to understand at the age of 14, as did Vanya Levitsky, every honest man is sure to go to prison. Right now, my papa is serving time, and when I grow up, they'll put me in too. They put him in when he was 23 years old. The majority sit quietly and dare to hope. Since you aren't guilty, then how can they arrest you? It's a mistake. They're already dragging you along by the collar, and you still keep on exclaiming to yourself, it's a mistake. They'll set things straight and let me out. Others are being arrested in mass, in mass, and that's a bothersome fact. But in those other cases, there is always some dark area. Maybe he was guilty. But as for you, you are obviously innocent. You still believe that the organs are humanly logical institutions. They will set things straight and let you out. Why then should you run away? And how can you resist right then? After all, you'll only make your situation worse. You'll make it more difficult for them to sort out the mistake. And it isn't just that you don't put up any resistance. You even walk down the stairs on tiptoe as you are ordered to do so your neighbors won't hear. At what exact point then should one resist? When one's belt is taken away? When one is ordered to face into a corner? When one crosses the threshold of one's home? An arrest consists of a series of incidental irrelevancies, of a multitude of things that do not matter, and there seems no point in arguing about any one of them individually. 
especially at a time when the thoughts of the person arrested are wrapped tightly around a big question, what for? And yet all these incidental irrelevancies taken together implacably constitute the arrest. Then he begins to talk about, well, to delve further into the thoughts that are going through the arrested person's mind. Um, he makes an example of a, of a young lady who the police came to arrest and she wasn't really bothered at all by the whole situation. The people went through her entire apartment. They went through her underwear drawers and time she really started to worry about things was when they touched her journal which she wouldn't even show her mother and she went off to the Lubyanka at the end of that paragraph though is something I would like to, to study for just a second the author says a person who is not inwardly prepared for the use of violence against him is always weaker than the person committing the violence ruminate on that for a minute put yourself in the mind of a victim wandering about their life or purposefully moving through their life oblivious to the plans of some deviant out there who's been watching them patterning their movements they know their schedule know what color their car is they know where they like to eat when they like to eat there then switch over into the mind of the deviant who's invested a lot of time and effort into tracking this person down and understanding their patterns and their habits and formulates a plan of attack That, that innocent person he knows with some certainty when he sets out at his predetermined time of what's going to happen he has brought tools he has maybe prepared himself mentally and physically he's ready and he's thought about well what if this and what if that and what if they're 15 minutes late or 15 minutes early he's had time to think through all these things the victim doesn't they're just going to be caught at the worst moment trying to walk in the house in the rain both hands full of groceries just barely able to get the door unlocked and that's when the aggressor strikes something to keep in mind stay aware at all times so he he again we're, we're talking about the mentality of <clears throat> the people who have been arrested the author says sometimes the principal emotion of the person arrested is relief and even happiness this is another aspect of human nature it happened before the revolution too Yekaterianodar, school teacher, 
Sergio Serdiokova, involved in the case of Alexander Ulyanov, felt only relief when she was arrested. But this feeling was a thousand times stronger during ec epidemics of arrest when all around you they were hauling in people like yourself and still had not come for you. For some reason they were taking their time. After all, that kind of exhaustion, that kind of suffering is worse than any kind of arrest. And not only for a person of limited courage. Vasily Vlasov, a fearless communist, whom we shall recall more than once later on, renounced the idea of escape proposed by his non-party assistants and pined away because the entire leadership of the Caddy district was arrested in 1937. And they kept delaying and delaying his own arrest. He could only endure the blow head on. He did endure it, and then he relaxed. And during the first days after his arrest, he felt marvelous. The author then moves on and discusses the question of, well, why didn't you do anything? about being arrested while you were being arrested before they put you in the car before they put you in cuffs before they put you on the train before they put you in the cell resistance why didn't you resist today those who have continued to live on in comfort scold those who suffered Yes, resistance should have begun right there at the moment of the arrest itself, but it did not begin. And so they are leading you. During a daylight arrest, there is always that brief and unique moment when they are leading you, either inconspicuously on the basis of a cowardly deal you have made, or else quite openly, their pistols unholstered through a crowd of hundreds of just such doomed innocents as yourself. You aren't gagged. You really can and you really ought to cry out, to cry out that you are being arrested. That villains in disguise are trapping people. That arrests are being made on the strength of false denunciations. That millions of be are being subjected to silent reprisals. If many such outcries had been heard all over the city in the course of the day, would not our fellow citizens perhaps have begun to bristle? And would arrest perhaps no longer have been so easy? In 1927, when submissiveness had not yet softened our brains to such a degree, two Czechists tried to arrest a woman on Superkov Square during the day. She grabbed hold of a stanchion of a street lamp and began to scream, refusing to submit. A crowd gathered. There had to have been that kind of woman. There had to have been that kind of crowd, too. Passers-by didn't all just close their eyes and hurry by. The quick young men immediately became flustered. They can't work in the public eye. They got into their car and fled. Right then and there, she should have gone to a railroad station and left. But she went home to spend the night, and during the night, they took her off to the Lubyanka. Instead, not one sound comes from your parched lips, and that passing crowd naively believes that you and your executioners are friends out for a stroll. And this happened into the millions of times. As we'll learn later, 
the number of these political prisoners in the gulag is staggering. The amount of them that died in the gulag put there by the state that they loved and worked for and fought for staggering this is the first chapter <clears throat> of the gulag archipelago written by alexander solzhenitsyn he wrote this book as i understand it a little bit out of a time in prison I think he got the first couple chapters done and then the guards found it and took it away and he wrote some more finished it somehow or another and it made its way to the west it was hated in the Soviet Union of course it would be as you'll see later uh, it loved in the west it sold millions of copies in the west believe he was even nominated for a Nobel Prize at some point I don't know if he won it or not but I believe he was at least nominated <laughs> the copy of this book that I have <clears throat> is a recent reprint with a foreword by none other than Jordan Peterson Jordan Peterson is an interesting figure. He uh, either you either have never heard of him, or you hate him, or you love him. I've not talked to anybody who's indifferent about him or about his message. Personally. I, I do disagree with him on some things. Of course, you can't disagree with people 100% all the time. But I think he carries a very important message. I also... Jordan has, has spent a lot of time thinking very deeply about the things that he talks about. He's got two books that I'm aware of right now. And they're very well-written books. They, I think a lot of young men in this turbulent, confusing, non-binary time would be very well served to read these books because it gives you a foundation to sort of build the way that you think about things on. If you are lacking that from your parents or from your religious beliefs. And he has spent a lot of time thinking through the, the tropes and the memes that exist in literature from antiquity into the present time reading through those things and drawing out common threads and common ideas and common ideologies and he's very well worth a and 
an open-minded listen. If you've never heard of him and you like to learn things about yourself, maybe like a little bit of different view of things in the world, check him out, please. Here's what Jordan has to say about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. First, you defend your homeland against the Nazis. Serving as a twice-decorated soldier on the Eastern Front in the criminally ill-prepared Soviet Red Army. Then, you are arrested, humiliated, stripped of your military rank, charged under the auspices of the all-purpose Article 58 with the dissemination of anti-Soviet propaganda and dragged off to Moscow's infamous Lubyanka prison. There, through the bars of your cell, you watch your beloved country celebrating its victory in the Great Patriotic War. Then you are sentenced in absentia to eight years of hard labor. But you got away easy. It wasn't so long afterward that your people in your position were awarded a tenor, and then a quarter of a century. And fate isn't finished with you yet, not by any means. You develop a deadly cancer in the camp, endure the exile imposed on you after your imprisonment ends, and pass very close to death. Despite all this, you hold your head high. You refuse to turn against man or God, although you have every reason to do so. You write, instead, secretly at night, documenting your terrible experiences. You craft a personal memoir, a single day in the labor camps, and... Miracle of miracles, the clouds part, the sun shines through, your book is published, and in your own country. It meets with unparalleled acclaim, nationally and internationally. But the sky darkens, once again, and the sun disappears. The repression returns. You become, once again, a non-person. The secret police, the dread KGB, sees the manuscript of your next book. It sees the light of day nonetheless, but only in the West. There your reputation grows beyond the wildest of imaginings. The Nobel Committee itself bestows upon you its highest literary honor. The Soviet authorities, stripped of their camouflage, are enraged. They order the secret police to poison you. You pass once again near death, but you continue to write. Driven, solitary, intolerably inspired. Your The Gulag Archipelago documents on the absolute and utter corruption of the dogmas and doctrines of your state, your empire, your leaders, and yourself. And then that is printed too, not in your own country, but in the West, once again from copies oh so dangerously hidden and smuggled across the borders. And your great book bursts with unparalleled and dreadful force into the still naive and unexpecting literary and intellectual world. You are expelled from the Soviet Union, stripped of your citizenship, forced to take residency in a society both strange to you and resistant in its own way to your prophetic words. But the power of your stories and the strength of your morals demolish any remaining claims to ethical and philosophical credibility still made by the defenders of the collectivist system that gave rise to all that you witnessed. Years pass, but not so many from the perspective of history. Then, another miracle. The Soviet Union collapses. You return home. Your citizenship is restored. You write and speak in your reclaimed homeland until death claims you. 
in 2008. A year later, the Gulag Archipelago is deemed mandatory reading by those responsible for establishing the national school curriculum of your home country. Your impossible victory is complete. Solzhenitsyn. I'll say this. I've, I've read a lot of books. And this book has probably been in the top five most difficult to read for me because in spite of the fact that Solzhenitsyn manages to write with such a light-hearted candor and manages to sneak in jokes and manages to sneak in jabs at the state and at his country that I'm sure go right over my head there's there's things in here that you would have to have have to lived at that time I think in that place to really understand in spite of the fact he is detailing such a dark and scary place as uh, Jordan mentioned that he was fortunate to only get eight years of exile where his peers were getting a tenor a tenor is a 10 year sentence and it got so bad that just about everybody expected at some point in their life to have to do a tenor and I guess they called it a tenor to dismiss it a little bit and we haven't even started talking about the austere conditions that the prisons, the gulag presented these folks doing their brief tenors we'll run into that later before we wander any farther away from Jordan Peterson's forward I'd like to read one more passage I think that this adequately both frames purpose of possibly and draws a clean conclusion to the words that Solzhenitsyn penned so long ago it is a matter of pure historical fact that the Gulag Archipelago played a primary role in bringing the Soviet Empire to its knees although economically unsustainable ruled in the most corrupt manner imaginable and relying on the slavery and enforced deceit of its citizens, the Soviet system managed to stumble forward through far too many decades before being cut to the quick. The courageous leaders of the labor unions in Poland, the great Pope John Paul II, and the American President Ronald Reagan, with his blunt insistence that the West faced an evil empire, all played their role in its defeat and collapse. It was Solzhenitsyn, however, whose revelations made it positively shameful to defend not just the Soviet state, but the very system of thought that made that state what it was. It was Solzhenitsyn who most crucially made the case that the terrible excesses of communism could not be conveniently blamed on the corruption of the Soviet leadership. The 
cult of personality surrounding Stalin, or the failures to put the otherwise stellar and admirable utopian principle of Marxism into proper practice. It was Solzhenitsyn who demonstrated that the death of millions and the devastation of many more were, instead, a direct, causal consequence of the philosophy, worse, perhaps, the theology, driving the communist system. The hypothetically egalitarian, universalist doctrine of Karl Marx contained hidden within them sufficient hatred, resentment, envy and denial of individual culpability and responsibility to produce nothing but poison and death when manifested in the world. For Marx, man was a member of a class, an economic class, a group, that and little more. In history, nothing but the battleground of classes, of groups. His admirers regarded, continued to regard, Marx's doctrine as one of compassion, moral by definition, virtuous by fiat. Consider the working classes and all their oppression and work forth rightly to free them. But hate may well be a stronger and more compelling motivator than love. In consequence, it took no time in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution for solidarity with the common man and the apparently laudable demand for universal equality to manifest its unarticulated and ever-darkening shadow. First came the most brutal indictment of the class enemy. Then came the ever-expanding definition of that enemy until every single person in the entirety of the state found him or herself at risk of encapsulation within that insatiable and devouring net. The burden delivered to those deemed at fault by those who elevated themselves to the simultaneously held position of judge, jury, and executioner, the necessity to eradicate the victimizers, the oppressors, in toto, without any consideration whatsoever for reactionary niceties, such as individual innocence. Let us note, as well, this outcome wasn't the result of the initially pristine Marxist doctrine becoming corrupt over time but something apparent and present at the very beginning of the Soviet state itself. Solzhenitsyn cites, for example, one Martin Lastis, Latsis, writing for the newspaper Red Terror, November 1, 1918, quote, We are not fighting against single individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. It is not necessary during the interrogation to look for evidence proving that the accused opposed the Soviets by word or action. The first question you should ask him is what class does he belong to? What is his origin, his education, and his profession? These are the questions that will determine the fate of the accused. Such is the sense and essence of red terror. End quote. It is necessary to think when you read such a thing, to meditate long and hard on the message. It is necessary to recognize, for example, that the writer believed that it would be better to execute 10,000 potentially innocent individuals than to allow one poisonous member of the oppressor class to remain free. It is equally necessary to pose the question, quote, who precisely belonged to that hypothetical entity, the bourgeoisie? It is not as if the boundaries of such a category are self-evident. Therefore, the mere perceiving, they must be drawn. But where exactly? And, more importantly, 
by whom or by what. If it's hate inscribing the lines instead of love, they will inevitably be drawn so that the lowest, meanest, most cruel, and useless of the conceptual geographers will be justified in manifesting the greatest possible evil and producing the greatest possible misery. Members of the bourgeoisie, beyond our redemption, they had to go as a matter of course. What of their wives, children, even their grandchildren? Off with their heads too. All were incorrigibly corrupted by their class identity and their destruction therefore ethically necessitated. How convenient that the darkest and direst of all possible motivations could be granted, the highest of moral standings. That was a true marriage of hell and heaven. What values, what philosophical presumptions truly dominated under such circumstances? Was it desire for brotherhood, dignity, and freedom from what? Not in the least, not given the outcome. It was instead and obviously the murderous rage of hundreds of thousands of biblical canes, each looking to torture, destroy, and sacrifice their own private abels. There is simply no other manner of accounting for the corpses.